Galatians, which is directly after the book of Galatians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will see that you have a Bible to follow along with us in our study tonight. Now, I have to say that because I am so respectful of your time, <laughs> that you will be out of here on time tonight. I thought I'd get a round of applause, you know. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Aside from the church in Jerusalem, directly after the days of Pentecost when the church was first born, the church in Ephesus is the healthiest of all of the New Testament churches. It's also not a coincidence that it's the church that we know the most about, of course, aside from the church in Jerusalem in the early days. It's the only letter that Paul wrote to a church in all of the New Testament where there is no rebuke. There's no correction. There's nothing that Paul heard of or saw as he examined this church that he realized, oh, I need to write them because they need to be corrected. And thus, the truths that are communicated by Paul to the church at Ephesus that we have before us are among the highest and the noblest of the Christian faith. The church was started, of course, by Paul. It was during his second missionary journey as he moved about. Of all the places that he went, it was Ephesus where he would spend the most time. On average, Paul would spend nothing more than a couple of weeks or perhaps a couple of months in a place getting a church started and established. We know that in Thessalonica, he spent just a period of three weeks. And it's incredible to examine there what he was able to accomplish in just three years. But in Ephesus, Paul spent three years working with, establishing, and, 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 and investing in the spiritual health of this church. And as a New Testament church, it's in our interest to uncover what was it that made the Ephesian church to be the healthy organism that it was. And as we start our study tonight, I want to take a look at the historical background that made up really the body of what this church was and see if there's anything that perhaps we can apply to ourselves as a New Testament church that we might find useful. What can we take from their successes and apply it to our church and our Christianity today? The first thing to take note of is that the church at Ephesus was created and cultivated by the Holy Spirit of God. Again, it was during his second missionary journey. Paul had moved through the, you know, western you know, regions on the western side of the Aegean Sea, starting up in the region of Philippi and then moving down into the region of Corinth and Athens. And then he hopped on a ship and he crossed back over the Aegean Sea and he went to the eastern side. And it tells us that passing through the upper coasts, 
he landed in the region of Ephesus. And it's recorded for us there in Acts chapter 19, the whole, you know, rundown of what happened when the Apostle Paul came into the region of Ephesus. And it tells us, landing there, that he found certain disciples. And, and, you know, that was Paul's custom. He would always look for the believing remnant or the believing portion of people in a city or in a town when he would come. And coming to Ephesus, he found some there. There were 12 of them. And we don't know how long it took, but we get the idea that as Paul was there with those 12, he realized, yeah, they were believers. Yeah, they were Christians, but there was something missing, something lacking. Something that Paul was used to seeing and tasting when he was in the presence of other believers. And it led him to ask them the question. He said, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And the reply from those clueless twelve was, we haven't even heard whether there be such a thing. We don't even know what you're talking about, Paul. And so Paul asked them, and he says, well, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, well, we were, you know, baptized with John's baptism. And it says that Paul, hearing this, that he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, he laid his hands upon them and prayed for them, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. In fact, it says that the Holy Ghost came upon them and that they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And thus, those 12 people that were there with Paul began the work of God in the region of Ephesus at that time. The only thing that can make a church to truly have life from God in it is the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a power that can be tapped into, as some might think. Well, if you just get the mechanics right, and if you can just figure out how to harness the energy of God, well, then you can experience the power of God's Holy Spirit. No, no, the Holy Spirit is not a power that is tapped into. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the invisible presence of the living God. Jesus referred to him as a he and as a him, not as an it or a thing. Later in Ephesians, Paul is going to exhort the believers not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can't grieve a power or a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the invisible presence of the living God. And if the Holy Spirit is present in a church or in a ministry or in a group of people that are gathered together, then the result of that is that there's going to be life and there's going to be power and there's going to be blessing because where the Spirit of God is is where there is life because He is life. If the Spirit of God is not present in a church or in the midst of a group of people, then the only thing that you can have is mechanics. A facade. Things that are conjured up from human strength. The things that we do to try to put on the fact that we're alive when essentially we are void of God's presence and God's spirit. The only thing that gives true life is His spirit. I was speaking with a brother a couple of weeks ago and he's been coming to this church for not very long. And as we sat and talked, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, you know, I can't figure this church out. He said, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've been to a lot of different churches. 
And you're not doing anything here that I haven't seen before. You're not saying anything that I haven't heard before. I, I, I've heard all this stuff, but there's something different here. He said, this church is alive. The people are different. God's spirit is moving. People are getting saved. No, no other churches, are, people are getting saved the way they're getting saved here. I, he said, I'm trying to figure out the formula. He said, but I can't figure it out. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, you know, we teach the word here. And he said, no, 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 no. He goes, I, I, I know that. He goes, people are catching on to that in other places. He goes, but it's not the same. He said, it's not the same thing. And I said, well, the difference is that we absolutely depend upon the spirit of the living God to do his work within our midst. And without him, nothing happens here. And he gets the glory for everything that happens. And if there's a difference in the church here or in what God is doing here, it has nothing to do with the mechanics of what we do or the formula that we've pinned out of five songs, Bible study. You know, it has nothing to do with any of that. If there's life here, it's because the Spirit of God is here. And if the Spirit of God is not here, then all we have is a machine. The appearance of life, but in reality, it's nothing but death. There are many people that look for a formula for creating life within a church. They'll even look to the Bible and they'll open up to the book of Acts and see what happened at the church's inception. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They gave themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. And so they'll sit down and they'll say, well, they had it figured out there in the early church in Jerusalem. The apostles' doctrine, we're going to give ourselves to Bible study. Fellowship, getting people together. Breaking of bread, communion, what Jesus taught, and prayer. And they think, biblically, we've got it. we figured it out. It's the formula of how to make church happen. What they fail to realize is that Acts 2.42 was not the cause of what took place there in Jerusalem. It was the effect of what took place there in Jerusalem. See, prior to Acts 2.42, God had poured out His Spirit upon 120 people that were gathered in an upper room. People that had no clue how to start a church. They had no clue how to organize a group of people and facilitate and serve and evangelize. They had nothing. They were drawing straws trying to figure out who was going to be the next leader. They were clueless. But there was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind and the Spirit of God filled that place and came upon that 120 people. And those 120 revolutionized the world and the reverberations of it are being felt by us sitting here right now. 3,000 people were saved because Peter preached a three-minute sermon under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And the result of the people that got saved that day is that there was something that needed to be done. They needed to be fed. They needed to be tended. And so, what do we do? We give them the Word of God. We're going to be together because we've been knit into the family of God. We're going to commune with the one who saved our souls, and we're obviously going to seek His face. But that was the effect, see? And any time we try to make a formula of what makes church work, we've started on the wrong side. The only thing that makes it work is the power and presence of the Spirit of God working in our midst. Other people study, quote-unquote, successful churches. 
And that's what they do. They figure out a formula and they write up articles in Christian publications and, you know, editorialize and spread ideas and blog endlessly about how to make church happen. But listen, it doesn't work that way. It's not a formula. It's not a form. It's not a mechanical mechanism. It's the power of the Spirit of God. It's the presence of God himself. That's what makes it alive. That's what makes it real. Otherwise, it's just a shadow. It's just a machine. And the reason why Ephesus was blessed, why they were successful as a church, is because they were created and kept by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And as we begin a study of this epistle, we want to be that kind of church. We don't want to be the kind that just figures out what's best to do and does it. But we want to be moved and blessed by the power of the Spirit of God, relying solely upon Him to do His work here. The second thing that we observe about Ephesus that made it the strong and healthy church that it was is that they had good leaders. Now, I don't think you can have a better leader than the Apostle Paul. I mean, if... Paul is the pastor of any church. I think that church is going to do good. But what was it that made Paul a good leader? Because I'm sorry to tell you this, but Paul's not available. We can study his writings, you know, and we can rely upon his God. But Paul, he's gone, you know. So what was it about Paul that made him a good leader? Because we, I mean, you know, whether we're talking about church leadership or whatever sphere of leadership any of us have, Leaders are leaders, and Ephesus had good leaders. What was it about Paul that made him a good leader? The first thing is that he led as he followed. If you're taking notes, I would write that one down. He led as he followed. I'm going to tell you a secret about effective leadership right now, and I didn't get this from Seven Habits of Effective Leaders. This is right out of the Bible. Went right to the source for this one. In any area of life, whether you are parenting, whether you're governing, whether you're coaching or mentoring or pastoring, or in any other way or application, you might be leading a group of people or even a single person. A man or a woman's authority cannot go one inch deeper than their submission to who they're following. What do you mean? In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had a conversation with a centurion. And the centurion came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, he said, I have a servant and he's home at sick with the palsy. He's sick of this thing. And Jesus said to the man, he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to heal him. But the man stopped Jesus as Jesus made that promise. And it says in verse 8 that the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And then he says, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found such great faith. No, not in Israel. Now, I am certain that the disciples were clueless. They were probably saying, Lord, he's crazy. What does that have to do with anything? I have people under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. Lord, that's ridiculous. 
But Jesus responded that he hadn't heard, he hadn't seen such faith. He didn't understand that, that, that there wasn't that kind of faith in Israel. What the centurion realized is that his authority as a centurion was not in himself, but that it was related to his submission. In other words, he was saying that the reason that I have authority as a centurion and that I can say to this one go, or I can say to this one come, is because I bow to the throne of Caesar. And because I am under Caesar's authority, therefore when I speak, people listen. And the faith that he had, that Jesus was marveling at when he spoke to the men, is that this man's faith was that I know that you, the man was saying to Jesus, I know that you are in submission to the highest authority in all of the universe. And therefore, you possess the greatest authority in the universe. And therefore, you only need to speak the word, and my servant shall be healed. You see, the vice president is in submission to the president of the United States. And so therefore, when the vice president speaks, he carries the authority of the president because he answers to the president. Now, the assistant to the vice president, when he speaks, he only carries as much authority as the vice president because he's in submission to the throne of the vice president. But you see, when a man, when a woman, when a person is in submission to the throne of God, then spiritually... They carry with them the authority of the throne of God. And Paul was a man that led as he followed. Paul bowed the knee. He was absolutely surrendered to the throne of God. And therefore he carried the authority of God in the way that he led. And it caused him to be an effective leader. Submission to God equals that you have the authority of God. And that's true whether you're parenting and you're leading your children. If you're parenting as one who's submitted to God, then you're going to carry the authority with your children of God. If you're governing, whether it be in society or whether it be in a smaller sphere of influence or whether you're a boss over a group of employees, if you are bowed and surrendered and serving in submission to the living God, then you're going to carry the authority and the weight of the living God to the people that are under you whether you're a coach and you're mentoring people that are under you, or whether you're a teacher forming and shaping and raising up students, the throne that you bow to is going to determine the weight of the authority that you have. And Paul was a man who was bowed to the authority of God, and therefore he carried the authority of God. That's why in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, when it speaks of the work in Ephesus, it says that God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. It had nothing to do with Paul. It was God that was able to work through Paul because Paul was submitted to the person of God. That's why in Acts chapter 19, verse 15, it alludes to us, it tells us that that's why Paul's name was known and feared in hell. Because he was a man who was in submission to God, a man who served God. And that's why it tells us in chapter 19, verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It wasn't because Paul was a type A. It wasn't because he had gone to the latest seminar on how to be an effective leader in your church or your community. It wasn't because Paul had an inside track with politicians and those that led groups of people. It had nothing to do with any of that. 
Paul's leadership was effective because he was one who led according as he followed. Do you understand? And that made Paul a good leader. The second thing that made Paul a good leader, a very simple thing, but yet so profound, is that Paul lived what he preached. When Paul met with the elders in Ephesus for the last time, knowing that it was going to be the last time that he would meet with them, there in Acts chapter 18, or Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 20, Paul testifies these words to them. It says that when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. He says, I have showed you and I have taught you. It wasn't just that his authority was in his words alone and that which they heard come from him, but it was in what they saw in his life when he would come down from the pulpit and live among them. And what they saw in Paul was they saw a man that was exactly the same whether he was in the pulpit or whether he was making tents out in the world. Or if he was in a business transaction with someone in the market. Or if he was relating to someone or counseling someone, he was exactly the same man in front of a group of people as he was in any other setting in his life. There was absolute congruency and agreement in his personality between what he was putting forth to be and what he actually was. And I know that sounds simple, but do you know how rare that is? As we stood here tonight during worship, somebody told me of another minister that has been exposed as a liar and a scandal, you know, and all the rest. And it seems like every day there's more and more that stand in the pulpit and they have great presence and they're eloquent with their words and they're knowledgeable with what they say. But it comes out that they're not the same person in the pulpit as they are out of the pulpit. They're different. Broken marriages, affairs, extortion and greed becomes exposed, dishonesty and lies and all of these things. With someone who preaches purity, preaches reality, preaches honesty and sincerity, but yet in their personal lives, they're hiding something. They haven't gotten their flesh under. They're not really in submission to the Lord Jesus. And they fall. But what happens Two things happen when a leader falls. First of all, it's always said, it's always said after the fact that the signs were visible for a long time. That there were subtle indications, there were things that were there, there were cracks in it, so to speak, and we could see that he wasn't the same man in and out of the pulpit. He was two different people. And you can see that that happens when a person isn't living the way that they're preaching. But then second of all, and this is the, this is the, the worst part when, when a leader falls. Is that every bit of good that was accomplished during the time that they were leading is immediately and irreparably undone. You cannot restore the things that are lost when a leader who is trusted falls from that place. The things that make a man or a woman a Christian 
can never be learned in a classroom. Now, I have no problem with Christian classes. I think they're right. I have no problem with Bible schools and seminaries. I think they're necessary. We need to understand doctrine and theology. But the things that make us a Christian on the inside, not just what we know and what we hear and what we learn and attain to intellectually, but what makes up the character and the content of who we are, that can't come in a classroom. It only comes in the crucible of life. See, Paul the Apostle, he had all of the theology and all of the doctrine, everything he needed, three days after he was saved. Because Paul was the Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. And the moment he got saved and the scales were lifted from his eyes, I believe that Paul immediately understood the implications of how every single facet of the Old Testament scriptures applied to Jesus Christ. In fact, we know he did because the first thing he did as soon as he got his strength back is he went out and he began to argue and dispute that Jesus was the Christ. And so persuasive and so harsh was his argument that in two cities they tried to kill him. And then God had to say, Paul, everybody's impressed with how much you know. Now come get to know me. And he spent the next decade in obscurity while God worked into his character the things that were already understood in his mind. And the danger of somebody who has a head full of knowledge, but a heart void of Christ, is that they're setting themselves up for a fall. Because they're not the same person in and out of the pulpit. But Paul was. He was every bit the same when he was living in society as he was when he was speaking before crowds of people. And so the church in Ephesus had good leadership. And it led to a healthy church. So they were birthed and blessed by the Spirit. They were given good leadership. And then third, they had a strong foundation. Now many times in the Bible, the construction of a Christian life or of a church is likened unto that of building a house or building a building or some form of infrastructure. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke to his disciples, all that were in his audience, and it's recorded even for us. And he says, those that hear these sayings of mine and do them are like unto a man that built his house upon a rock, a solid foundation. And the winds beat against that house and the rains, but they couldn't knock it down because it was founded upon a rock. But he said, those that hear these sayings of mine, but don't do them, are like unto those that build their house upon the sand. There's no foundation. It's not a solid base. There's no strength in the structure. And therefore the winds, they come, the rains, the storms beat against it, and great is the fall of it because there was no foundation in it. And he likened how a person builds their life based upon the foundation or not, according to whether they do his word or whether they don't. Paul, when speaking to the Corinthians, he used the same illustration, and he said that we are God's building. He said, you and I, the church. Now, not speaking of the individual life, but our collective existence as a body of people, that we are God's building. And Paul said that no other foundation can any man lay than that foundation is laid, which is Jesus. And Paul said that I, as a wise master builder, have laid a foundation before you. 
that I've put a strong foundation under you. And now it's up to you and up to your leaders to build upon that with wisdom. Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. But he likened it unto a building and he talks about the foundation of a building. Now, the quality of any building is only as good as the foundation that it stands upon. And what's the foundation? It's the base structure. It's the firmness that's going to hold up the rest of it. And if the foundation is faulty, then the whole building is faulty because it's not going to last. It might appear good. It might turn a good profit for a while. But in the end, it's going to be a failure and a reproach upon the builder because it wasn't solidly built upon a solid foundation. So what was the foundation that Paul laid in this church at Ephesus that caused them to be so strong? First and foremost, again, if you're taking notes, it was founded upon the Word of God. The strength of the structure was first of all found in that it was founded upon the Word of God. In the two chapters of Acts that highlight the birthing and blessing of the church in Ephesus, there are over six references to Paul's priority while he was among them, and that is always that he gave to them the word of God. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul testifies to them, and he says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Again, in chapter 20, verse 31, just a few verses down, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was a man who knew that if they were going to last, if they were going to be strong, if their foundation would be sure, then it must be the word of God that is given to them and fed to them and that they're cultivated by this word, this powerful living word of God. Sadly, there are many churches today that are turning away from the Bible. That are little by little distancing themselves from this most strongest of rocks, the strongest of words. They'll never tell you that. You'll never drive by a church and see the sign out front that says, Calvary Unbible Fellowship, you know. You'll never see first non-biblical Baptist, you know, as you're driving down the road. You'll never read the sign. You know how they put the signs with the clever logos? You know, Dusty Bibles, our mission statement, you know. You'll, you'll never see that on a sign as you drive by a church. But when you go inside, it's clear that that's exactly what they're doing. The Bible is slowly being withdrawn. There's more of an emphasis upon the music and the performance that's taking place than there is on the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, the meat and the milk of God's Word. There's more emphasis on drama and dance, and there's less time for the Bible. Oh, we still have a sermon. But we're not going to give you the strong meat of the Word. We're not going to make you sit for 45 whole minutes. This is America. Our sitcoms are 24 minutes with commercials for breaks. The presentation trumps the preaching. Intelligent lighting and smoke screens and the way you're affected emotionally is more important than the work that can take place in your soul when you come into the presence of God's Word. 
by the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's watered down, it's weakened. Or, if that's not the case, then what you find is that one aspect of the Christian life is is magnified and constantly highlighted, and other parts of it are completely ignored. So you'll come to church week after week, and all you'll get is the same message, the same element, the same aspect of God's love and God's grace, God's forgiveness. But you'll never hear about God's wrath or God's judgment or sin. You'll never hear those things. Now, you all know who Joel Osteen is. And you said, oh, my goodness, he said a name. I said a name. Now, I have no problem with Joel Osteen personally. And I don't think he's unsaved. I I have no problem saying that Joel Olstein is saved. And I have no problem with Joel Olstein's message. Now, mind you, I've only heard like three of them. So I'm not speaking with perfect knowledge here. So don't say, well, don't you know he said? Because no, I don't know what he said. What I'm saying is what I've heard. I have heard nothing from Joel Olstein that makes me think he's not saved. And I have no problem with his message. None whatsoever. If he were an author or a traveling speaker, I think he would be phenomenal. But he has no business as a senior pastor of a church. None whatsoever. Because although he preaches one element of God, and he's very uplifting and very encouraging, and that's very necessary, especially in our time of day, but he does not preach the whole counsel of God's word. He is not equipping the saints that God has entrusted to his care to be able to lead solid and godly Christian lives in the world that we live in. He's preaching one element and he's ignoring others completely. He's representing God by bringing forth one aspect of his nature, but he's misrepresenting God by neglecting to declare the rest. And the result is that the saints there are not equipped. And number two, I think he's going to get in trouble. And no matter what they tell you in the periodicals or the editorials or the church growth seminars, his church is not successful. Because a church that's founded on anything other than the whole counsel of God's word has a weak and faulty foundation. And no matter how good it looks on the outside or how glorious it seems as the camera pans across 20,000 people that are sitting there listening, what's going on in the invisible, in the unseen part of it, it's cracked. And when the storms come, and when the rains beat against that house, it's not going to stand, because it's not founded upon a rock. Suffice it to say, the whole counsel of God's word is essential for a Christian or a church to have a strong foundation. And it was Paul's priority when he came into the region of Ephesus and invested time and strength into the church that he was going to use it to give them the whole counsel of God's word. The second thing of Paul's time there in Ephesus is that it was given to evangelism. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we're told, in fact, I'll read it to you, that this continued by the space of two years so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It's speaking of Paul's preaching to them. For two years he preached, and listen to what it says again. It says, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. It does not say that all they that dwelt in the city of Ephesus heard the word. It says all they that dwelt in where? Asia. 
It didn't just reach to the outer borders of the city itself, but it spread throughout the entire continent of Asia Minor. In two years, the preaching of Paul. Now, that does not happen unless the inreach, which is Paul's teaching of the word to the disciples there in Ephesus, produces outreach. Do you understand? The inreach of the teaching of the word built up the Christians that were there in Ephesus to a point that they were given to outreach. That when they left Paul's presence, when they went out from hearing the word of God, when they tasted and experienced the power of God's spirit, it led them and drove them that as they went back to where they lived and where they interacted with people, they carried with them the light. They carried the message and the words of salvation. They spread the word where they went so that it did not just permeate the city where they were, but it permeated the continent where the city itself was situated. They were given to evangelism. Now, we exist as a church, and any church that is blood-bought by Jesus Christ does not exist to simply be a social club or a social medium. Where we get together with people that look like us and act like us and think like us and talk like us and we speak Christianese and we drink Christian coffee or Christian crack as some people have called it, you know, or whatever. And, you know, I drink coffee. Don't worry, I'm not condemning anybody on that. (laughs) But rather, the church is to be a place where the people of God are equipped and encouraged to carry out with them the message of God to the places that they go. We're to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Laying the foundation so that when you go, well, let me put it like this. In Israel, there's two major bodies of water. There's the Sea of Galilee, and then there's the Dead Sea. The springs up in Dan, which is the northernmost region, are some of the most powerful and prolific springs in all of the world. I think it's something like 600 million gallons of water per second or per minute. It's some ridiculous amount of water that, that, that feeds this Jordan River that runs from north to south in the region there. And the waters, they come out of the springs of Dan and they come into the Jordan River, or I mean into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is just teeming with life. The fishing industry is, is immense, you know, and even in Jesus' day, you hear of how they would catch so many fish that the nets would break, and just these incredible hauls of fish because of the life that's in that lake. And the reason why there's so much life in that lake is because the water that comes in and feeds Galilee also has a place where it leaves on the other end. It, it comes in and it flows out. Now you go 60 miles south, and you drop in elevation to 1,500 feet below sea level, and you come to the Dead Sea or to the Salt Sea. And in the Salt Sea, the same exact water that brought forth life in the Sea of Galilee, it reaches the Dead Sea, and the salt content of that water is so thick, so rich, that nothing at all can live in it. It is all completely dead. I have a picture of me laying on the sea, the Dead Sea where it looks like I'm laying on a piece of plywood that's resting on the surface because the mineral content is so rich that you can't even sink in the water. You just, it pushes you up out of the water. And I'm sitting there like I'm in a chair reading my Bible, you know, because, you, you know, your feet are right there. If the water touches your eyeball, you better get to a hospital because the salt content is so rich that it'll burn it right out. And there's nothing at all that lives in the Dead Sea, and that is for one reason. 
no outflow. It is constantly being fed. It is constantly taking in. It is constantly drawing, but it is never giving. And the result is that it is dead. And the same thing is true in the life of any person of God. You are either the Sea of Galilee that is taking in from the spring of God's word, the spring of his spirit as it speaks and ministers and brings life into our soul. But if you're not also giving out, then all of a sudden that water becomes stale. You become too heavy and too thick with minerals and nutrients and eventually the life that's supposed to be turns into nothing but death. A church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. In Ephesus, they were given to evangelism. And then the third thing that made up their strong foundation is that they were a church that was given to holiness. Now, holiness is defined as being set apart for God. And holiness in the life of a believer or in the life of a church is measured by the amount of a person's life or existence that is set apart and surrendered to God. So to the degree that you are in submission and in surrender to the will and the work of God and the presence of God within your life, to that degree you are considered holy or sanctified. It's the same idea. To be sanctified is to be set apart. Now I have found that Life, and I've found this from myself, is that life is a lot like a mason jar. You know, those jars that hold preserves and jams and everything? If you put a jar under the faucet, after a little while, guess what happens? It gets full. And then it can't hold any more water or any more liquid or any more jam or whatever it is that you're trying to fill this thing with. And it took me 30 years to get full, but I finally got full. And I realize that I can't just continually be taking in information, taking in stimulation, taking in and retain it all. Because eventually you get full and you can't receive anymore. You can't take anymore. You're full. And then you got to start to organize, defragment, if you would, you know. Okay, what's important? What can I get rid of? What can I do? I've got to make room in here. There's still stuff to learn. I want to know God's word. I want to, but I'm not getting it. It's, it's, It's coming in, but it's, not getting in. It's just bouncing off. You know, what's, what's going on here? You know, we're a lot like computers. I remember, you know, getting a laptop, you know, and you get your laptop and it's like 200 gigabytes, you know, and you'll never use that much. You'll never fill up 200 gigabytes. And so you get your computer and, you know, a certain amount of it has the operating system, Windows or, I'm sorry, Mac users, whatever they do, I don't know. You know, but you have the operating system that runs the thing and then you have this immense amount of space that you can fill up however you want. You can put your photos in it, you can put your music in it, you can put your files important things, you know, anything you want. It's your space. Fill it up. Do what you want with it. And we're a lot like that. You know, we have our operating system. We have our jobs and our families and our routines and things that we have to do. Just the the normal part of life. That takes up some room, but it, it just is what it is. But then you have this immense amount of room in this vessel that God has given you. And you can fill it with anything you want. Most people fill it with useless drama. Useless ditties and tunes, sound bites, pictures, images, memories. Not all bad, but what happens is that it eventually gets full. And then what? 
Well, then you get saved. And you come into contact with this God. And you taste his word and his truth. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, I need some room. I need to clean the cachet. And you start deleting old files, you know, and you start, oh, Lord, let me have your word, you know, this whole thing. Look what they did in the city of Ephesus when they wanted more room for God. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, it says that many believed, or many that believed came, and they confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. These people were so moved by what God was doing in their lives and so filled with his spirit that they were willing to part with anything that was in their lives that competed with space within them that God could have. And so much so that they considered these things to be worthless. Now, I've talked to people that get saved and they love God. And they say, listen, I've got this dilemma. I've got about $5,000 worth of CDs that don't glorify God. You know, compact discs, albums. What do I do? I say, it's up to you. Not my, not my uh, problem, you know, not my burden. I'll tell you what they did in the book of Acts. But they considered these things to be worthless if they competed with space within their life for the things of God. 50,000 pieces of silver. This wasn't just one guy who had some bad habits. This was widespread. This was huge. And the reason that they did it is because they wanted anything, anything at all that was in their lives that would distract them from having more of God or being more set apart for God. They wanted it out at any cost. It was worthless. It was contraband. Because it was keeping them back. And the reason that we know that is because he goes on in the next verse, in verse uh, 19, or verse 20, and he says that the result of this was that so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And that any time a person, a believer, or a church, when a person takes account and they say, you know what, there are things in my life, in my home, things that I am affectionately dear to, memories that I hold on to, images and pictures that that I won't release and surrender to God within my mind. Listen, any time that you surrender to the things of God, it makes room for the word of God to grow within you and to prevail, to win. And that will bring strength to your foundation as a Christian and it will bring strength to our body as a church. Holiness turns into or equivocates with the presence of God. Because he inhabits and fills everything that's dedicated to him. He doesn't leave any of it behind. None of it, if it's offered to God, he takes it and he uses it and he brings it for his glory. These people wanted to be holy. They wanted to be set apart for God. And so we have before us here the profile of a healthy church. A church that is birthed and blessed By the Spirit of God. A church that had good leaders that lead as they follow. And a church that has a strong foundation built upon the Word of God. Evangelism and a passion for souls. 
and a desire to be holy and please the Lord. Now, I said to you at the beginning of our Bible study tonight that the truths contained in the letter that Paul wrote to this church are among the highest and noblest in all of the Christian faith. And the reason why Paul is able to communicate this truth, these treasures, these gems to this group of people is because of the spiritual health which they possessed. He didn't write these things to the Galatians because they were tied up with legalism. Their legalism wouldn't allow them to grasp and comprehend the things that he's going to say. He didn't write it to the Colossians because they they were out there. They were space cases. They were into mysticism and esoteric things and Paul wouldn't have been able to get through to them. It's not what they were looking for. But to this church that possessed this health, that had things in order, that said we want God in our lives. We want to glorify Him. We want to know Him. To them, Paul says, listen to what you have. What you possess in Christ Jesus. And he begins to talk to them of the highest elements of the Christian faith. And my prayer for us as a fellowship is that this church and each person that comes and hears these words may be able to comprehend and understand the richness of what's being communicated in these verses. To not just grab it theologically and say, okay, now I understand the outline of Ephesians. But to be able to grab hold of these things spiritually and say, yes, Lord, I receive it. Do it in my life. Next week, we'll begin looking at all these things that we have in Jesus Christ as we Pick up and look at the things that Paul communicates to this church. But as we close tonight, as we look at this church that was in good spiritual health, I ask you to take an assessment. What's the state of your own spiritual health? Are you a person that's governed and moved by the Holy Spirit of God? That you've been born of the Spirit. Just just as Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came upon Him, and then it says that the Spirit led Him into the wilderness or drove Him into the wilderness, and then the Spirit brought Him into the temple, and, and He was driven of the Spirit, born of the Spirit, lived in the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Does that mark your life like it did the lives of those that were in Ephesus? Are you a person that's in submission to the power of the Spirit of God in your life? Does He possess all of you? Are you really living in submission to Him? How strong is your spiritual foundation? What place, honestly, does the Bible have in your affections? What's the first thing that you reach for when you feel that spiritual hunger rise upon you, that that emptiness or unsettledness that you get maybe early in the morning or at certain times during the day? Does your heart turn towards the things of God? Or does it long to be filled with some form of cheap entertainment or some worldly pleasure? May God give us hearts that say, God, fill me with you. Teach me the secret of being satisfied by your spirit. What it means to just know you and sit at your feet. Now the answer to any of these things, if you would come back and say, man, I need to, I need to grow, I need to assess. The answer is not to try harder. I hope nobody leaves here saying, you know what, I'm going to try harder to be more spiritual. That's not the answer. It won't work. The answer is to draw nearer. Get close to Jesus. Get back into his presence. Sit at his feet and say, Lord, I'm in you. I believe in you. I'm saved by you. Now fill my life again. 
Bring me back to the place where I trust in you completely, where I rely upon you wholly for everything, for every need, where every moment I'm conscious and aware of your presence with me, where at every junction I'm in submission to your will and to what's happening, that in every unexpected circumstance I'm yielding control of, the, of these things to you, Lord, not I, but Christ that liveth in me. Don't try harder. Get closer begin to enjoy the sweet fellowship walking with him. Enjoy the blessings that we have as being those that have been called by his name, purchased by his blood. May God give us wisdom. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit. You said that you wouldn't leave us comfortless. You said that if you go away, I will send the comforter to you. And you said that he would lead us into all truth. And so I pray that tonight, even right now, you would send your Holy Spirit. And I know, Lord, you're already here, but Lord, I pray that you would move amongst us. That in this moment, as we digest the truth of your word, that we would also allow your spirit to do your work within our hearts. Father, for those that are distant right now, that have drawn back a few steps or that are distracted by something or overwhelmed by some circumstance, whatever it might be, Father, I pray that right now, Lord, you would lift away the burden of those things. You would cause their hearts to be quiet before you. That they'd be awakened, perhaps, from a spiritual slumber and brought back into fellowship with you again. Or perhaps some here that have fallen into some pattern of sin are caught in some net. Pray that even in this time, your spirit would speak forgiveness to them. That that anxiousness would be replaced by your perfect tranquility. Pray for those here that are burdened with a circumstance that seems impossible. I ask that even now, as Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done, Lord, that each person here would have the strength to say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. For those here that are perhaps striving, in some way fighting, I pray that they would find the grace to yield to you, to rest. And I ask, Lord, that where there's any area in our church where there's a lack of health, in any area where you see that we are not what we're supposed to be, we ask that you would fix it, Lord. You said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. And so we ask, Father, that you would put your shield around us your spirit within us. And may we be built upon the rock. Pray you bless us as we go. Be honored and glorified in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.